0: There is what we called an immaterial dimension of poverty that is experienced as a result of racial exclusion or marginalization, ethnic based discrimination and so on. This sense of powerlessness that comes from an awareness that there is a significantly strong system that is essentially working against you.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Evidence for Development Podcast, where we explore methods and evidence developed and used in the Global South to shape policy and improve lives. I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray, and I'm your host. If you're interested in research, knowledge exchange, and learning related to international development, then this podcast is for you. Today, we are talking with Anupama Ranawana. Christian Aid's thematic research specialist, because she carried out some research for Christian Aid and we wanted to pick her brain, so to speak, and Anne-Marie Aguiman, Poverty and Inequality Strategic Advisor at Christian Aid. We'll be talking about something called reflexivity, or about being reflexive, while carrying out research, and also about the narrative method. marie I'm going to start with you. Um, you've got a really interesting job title, which is Poverty and Inequality Strategic Advisor. Can you tell us what you do at Christian Aid?
0: My role at Christian Aid is Poverty and Inequality Advisor. And this focuses on understanding the ways in which the experience of poverty and inequality shifts around the world and over time, and allowing this to shape how we then respond to it in our programs. Great thanks,
1: Anu. Do you want to tell me a bit about what you do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. um so my role is thematic research specialist, which is a really fancy way of saying research advisor, so I advise different um, staff members on their research, but I also get to do little pieces of commissioned research like the one we're going to talk about.
1: Great, so as we're talking about reflexivity, I thought uh, we should start by explaining where all three of us are coming from, as it were. I'm interested to hear how we describe ourselves. So um,
0: Anne-Marie, would you like to start? Yes, I identify as a black woman belonging to a Southern African ethnic group or tribe. I'm Christian and at the moment I live and work in England. So those are the key identity markers I would define myself as.
2: Great. Anu, how about you? Thanks, Suzanne. Um, My identity markers are, um, I define myself as a a person from the global South, um, South Asian, based in Scotland, and I suppose very sort of interfaith in my approach to faith. And uh, although from the global South, very much also trained in the West, so holding lots of dualities. So in that same spirit, I would describe
1: myself first and foremost as a feminist and a mum. I have a dual Canadian and British nationality and am white. I grew up in Toronto, Canada, a large multicultural city but have lived in England for about 20 years. And in between that, I've lived and worked in France, Japan, Burkina Faso, and in Rwanda, and as a journalist in many countries in West Africa. So clearly, we're all bringing a diversity of international perspectives, which should make for a really interesting discussion. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about the research you've been carrying out for Christian Aid about race, ethnicity, um, colour and poverty. anne if I could start with you, what did your research reveal about how different groups um, understood race and ethnicity?
0: Yeah, sure. So the common thread that came through from both our literature review and the case studies of the five countries that we did this research with, of those, those countries, we had conversations with colleagues in Colombia, Bangladesh, IOPT, Zimbabwe, and Sierra Leone. Um, the overarching idea was that race was kind of this global categorization of people, and it really carried that global framing. While es- ethnicity seemed to be understood as a way in which these categories are then split you know, into smaller groups. And then what determines this split can be things like language, common culture, land of origin, and so on. Um, However, I'd quickly add that um, that classification is somewhat simplistic on my part, Um, and the research showed us in a lot of detail that there is a lot of complexity and nuance. But as a starting point, that was the, the common thread, that race can be understood in this global experience, so to speak, ethnicity and colour then sort of brings in that nuance and and, and change across the different contexts. But actually, one of our colleagues in Bangladesh said quite clearly, you know, uh, when thinking about race, it's not as simple as black versus white. Um, There's also issues of lighter complexion and darker complexion, which really showed this spectrum of understanding where we needed to situate ourselves. So, whilst there's sort of points of convergence and similarity, there was also a lot of um, detail and complexity to unpack in that. Anu, did you have anything
1: that you wanted to add around what you found around the findings of the research?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, what I would like to add is that one of the things that came out quite beautifully from the research was the importance of paying attention to hard histories, um, by which we mean just how interwoven history is with the present so the experience uh, sort of the experience that say your grandmother may have had is still impacting you in the present and leading um to ways in which you know you may perceive yourself or how you perceive your community and that's something that we saw coming out across the different country contexts that we spoke to and that um really speaks to how um, and we use the word complex, how complex um, it was to navigate this study. Do you have an
1: example of that, where that historical context felt sort of ever-present in terms of the way people were defining themselves and thinking about these issues?
2: Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, one uh, good example is in the context of Israel and the occupied Occupied Palestinian Territories or IOPT um, as we say here um, at Christian Aid where our interviewees uh, talked about how there have been generations um, living in occupied spaces where you might find a grandmother, um, a mother and uh, young children all living together, all sort of sharing experiences together and then having new experiences. And what that can do is create, so I use a kind of phraseology there, intergenerational trauma. So you're sharing trauma across several years, but then you're also experiencing new forms of trauma and new forms of violence and internalizing that, which means that even when you're partaking of, say, a transitional justice or sort of a a program for peace building, for example, you're still having to navigate the trauma that you've internalized historically, as well as the trauma that you're facing in the present
1: these are obviously really sensitive issues and, and contexts, and I was wondering if you could talk about the approaches you used to discuss those issues with colleagues. For example, I've seen that you use the narrative approach. What is the narrative approach, and and how does it work? Emory, do you want to maybe um, outline that a bit?
0: Yes, of course. So this was an interesting method for me to use as I hadn't used it previously. And it's a method of research that really invites participants. And in our case, it was our colleagues into a space of dialogue to really understand how they made sense of these issues of race and ethnicity and color within their context, specifically related to the way that it shapes poverty And um, the narrative method involves normally asking a single introductory question. And for us, we ask the question, how do the terms race, ethnicity and colour resonate in your context? And what other identity related markers carry significant meaning? So by asking this, we were inviting our colleagues to focus on particular markers or the particular dynamics that felt most meaningful, most significant to them within their context. So narrative inquiry really allows the participants to frame the emphasis of the conversation, to take the conversation into new directions um, and really allows them to have the power to place importance on what is important to them. Thanks.
1: Anu, can you provide... An example of how you use the narrative approach? I'm hoping that 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 example might sort of illustrate how it might be different from, say, a key informant interview.
2: So with a key informant interview, you would probably use a set of very structured questions that take the person you're talking through through a particular logical journey where you're unpacking something and you're trying to find a key answer. What we want to do with the narrative method is not to essentially place my need as a researcher upon the person who's who I'm speaking with. Um, and so um, the idea of the narrative really is to allow the person you're speaking to to tell us their story. So we used a very open-ended question to start with, um, right? So we asked, uh, does race, ethnicity or colour have meaning in your context in a very sort of open way? Or is there anything else? And for example, with Bangladesh, that's when we got that immediate reply, it's not as simple as black and white. Uh, And so, and that allowed us to then open up that question. Um, And it worked very well, for example, where we had two or three conversation participants because they were each telling us different stories and then sort of popping off of each other, sharing stories together and creating um, associations that they may not have done had we very much targeted questions to them. So this, 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 uh, this kind of a loving the, the, the freedom of expression. And when you use an open question like that, you also then I love the um, interviewee, in a sense, to guide you to the next question. So if they said uh, a certain thing, we would say, oh, can you talk about, about that a little bit more? So we had a really interesting example there uh, about different terminologies as well that were coming through that we ourselves hadn't found um, in documentary review or even in any sort of the pre-conversations that we had had.
1: Could you just... Give us an example of where you know you feel the narrative approach has sort of drawn out information that you otherwise might not have, have come
2: across. Certainly. So the example I'll give is from Bangladesh, where uh, colleagues immediately responded to us by saying it's not as simple as black or white. And they talked about the issue of lightness and darkness of skin. And the example here is that if your skin is... Of a darker shade than someone else's. Even if you belong to the same community, you are seen as lesser. And you internalize that understanding of yourself as lesser um, or as sinful. And that's, of course, connected to issues of caste hierarchy that you find in South Asian communities, particularly, because that's, of course, connected to, uh, for example, the Brahmin understanding that a lighter skin is better. It's Less sinful it's pure it's good it's from God, and that if you are obviously your darker skin, you are you know opposite of all of those things, so what our colleagues were talking to us about in terms of lightness and darkness was this idea that especially women who come from uh rural backgrounds who also may be from marginalized communities then internalize all of these different inequalities that or shall we say oppressions that society places upon them and so they have this very complicated identity that even if they are say um, able to access a loan as an entrepreneur they still feel unable to leave behind or to um, have the confidence of someone who has lighter skin Emory, you spoke previously about
1: Sierra Leone and issues that came through from the research there on ethno-regionalism.
0: Could you explain a bit more? Um, yeah, sure. So when we, ha- when we started the conversation with our colleagues in Sierra Leone, we were taken into a new direction in that they introduced this term of ethno-regionalism. And ethno-regionalism can be thought of as the way in which Different ethnic groups or tribes in close geographical proximity work together to build political power for that particular region or that particular people group. So this was very much uh, sort of happening within the political space rather than filtering into the social space as well. And this was interesting for us because it introduced a plurality to that dynamic and that tension that we didn't necessarily see in that in any of the other case studies. Normally, when we have conversations of ethnic groups, we um, look at them sort of as quite individual groups um, and sort of understanding how that leads to marginalization and exclusion. Um, But in Sierra Leone, they were talking about the way that groups kind of work together to, to build power over time. And of course, that then determines who is allocated particular resources and who isn't, and therefore experiences poverty as a result. This particular theme was interesting because it drew on how poverty is experienced today But also there was um, a clear sort of line into history, as Anna was talking about there, about how these dynamics can sort of be traced and rooted back to the colonization of Sierra Leone and how different ethnic groups were used and co-opted into having power over each other. And so over time, what has happened is that inequality hasn't been reconciled. And so you see these tensions that are reflected within the political space uh, because ethnic groups want to have that proximity to power. But what was interesting was when we asked colleagues about whether this filtered into the social spaces, they they said, no, actually, because people intermarry and you you could be a woman from the Mendi tribe and you marry a man from the um, Timneys, for example but you're still expected to vote according to the ethnic group that you belong to. So it's very interesting to um, explore that and see its relationship to poverty within Sierra Leone.
1: Yeah, fascinating. Really, really interesting. I mean, I know also from, from my time uh, working in Rwanda that also some of these categories and groups might have existed before colonial times, but then became more entrenched. Um during it. So it, you know, it, it's again this, this idea of you know history and about how these maybe some of these groupings and and identity markers became more fixed um, over time, which is really interesting. So through this research process, you also used a sort of a reflexive practice. And reflexivity involves, as far as I understand it, examining how knowledge is produced. So both the research and the communities they research, so that researchers are more aware of their own positions and how they're situated in the process of, of knowledge production. So I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I tried to sort of think about a way of describing reflexive practice in, in a sort of a simple way. And it felt to me that it might be about seeing the researcher as like a photographer or something that has brought Uh, certain knowledge into focus or certain knowledge into the spotlight and left other knowledge out but uh, as part of that process the photographer is also turning the camera onto themselves so the person behind the camera taking the picture any why is situating the researcher within the research process so important do you think can you explain what reflexivity is
2: Um, Yeah, it's important to um, situate and really understand the researcher in the process because of one um, really important word, which is power. Research can be very extractive. You know, quite often you go into a situation and you're having a conversation, you're taking someone's knowledge um, and then turning it into, in a way, your own. But as a researcher, you have to realize that you also don't go into... Any situation, impartial. You bring with you who you are, um, what your trainings are, what your prejudices are, what your biases are, and so on. So when we opened up by talking about uh, positionality, that was really important to realize that when I'm listening to a story, I'm listening to it with all of the different identities that I hold, and that's how I understand something. And therefore, it's difficult to to take yourself away from what you're hearing or what you're experiencing. So even as a, when a photographer, I suppose, sets up their camera and they're looking at a particular, you know, say you want to take a photograph of a bird, you want a particular angle. You know, you may not even know it, know it yourself, but you want that angle. So you you might, you know, adjust your camera accordingly. And so it's important to be aware of that. And 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 becoming aware of your positionality means you become aware of how much power you hold in the room. How powerful you are, especially as someone who is asking another person to share their experience and their life and their knowledge with you. And when we talk about reflexive praxis, what we're saying is that we acknowledge who we are as researchers. We acknowledge the kinds of power we bring into a room. We try to understand how much power there is in a room because it can be you know spread amongst different uh, persons within the room. um and you also, then um, put yourself through a process of not only um, collecting research or collecting knowledge, but allowing the knowledge to transform you, to affect you, and to think through ways in which it might change, you know, your mind about something, the ways in which it can affect you. So that's really what um, we mean by a reflexive praxis. Emory, how did you bring your own self and
1: your own reflections into the research process?
0: I think I maybe could best illustrate this with a particular example. Um, So bearing in mind everything that Anu explained, when we spoke to colleagues in Zimbabwe in particular, they talked about the mistreatment of black Zimbabwean miners by Chinese business owners. That was sort of the dynamic that they were talking about in relation to poverty. And this particular theme, this story resonated with me personally a lot. Um, I grew up in a copper mining town in Zambia. It was called Luansha. And I moved to the UK in the early mid 2000s. And both my parents were employed by the copper mines in, in in Luansha. And the reason that we ended up moving actually was because quite a few mines in Zambia were liquidated during that, that period of time. Um, so these were state-owned mines that were liquidated and then sold to foreign entities. And so for me, it resonated with me in a personal way because I understand. Uh, the way in which as Africans, we place importance and meaning on land and resources and access to those resources, and the kind of tensions that arise when that is um, displaced or held elsewhere. And when analysing the conversation that we had with colleagues from Zimbabwe, I had to continually check myself and make sure that I wasn't, if we go back to that idea of um, researchers being photographers, that I wasn't adding, you know, color or saturation to particular points that our colleagues didn't want it. So overemphasizing particular ideas. And to do this, I really found actually being able to do research with Anu, who comes from a completely different background to me, has a completely different way of seeing the world. It was really useful because um, we were able to naturally check each other's blind spots. And so um, through that, we were making sure that we were staying true to the narrative that was given to us rather than expressing a narrative that we have in our minds you know, before the conversation has even started so, I think being able to work in a trusting relationship with a co-researcher is a really good way of embedding that.
1: Emery, you referred there to the the research that you're doing in Zimbabwe and what that revealed about mining in Zimbabwe. Now, you've touched about upon your own personal experience, but what was it that you found through through your research uh, on the mining sector in in Zimbabwe as well, and how that related to the research?
0: Well, in specifically the context of Zimbabwe, I should probably start by saying there are significant layered issues within Zimbabwe when it comes to race and ethnicity, and there's a long history of that. And so our research focusing on specifically this dynamic of um, Chinese business owners within mines was sort of a very narrow stream of looking at this really kind of complex dynamic going on within the country. And um, the findings from the, from the research were looking at the way in which racial power filters into different streams of, of life in Zimbabwe and ultimately takes away the power, the agency, and devalues the rights of Black Zimbabweans. And so um, within the context of the mines, our colleagues were talking about how black Zimbabwean miners not being able to fight for their rights, to have safe working conditions, to demand pay that was um, worthy of the work that they were doing, was all rooted in this idea that black Zimbabweans were undeserving of those rights being honoured by foreign business owners. And we can see this across lots of different African contexts that actually people are making the same points, they are fighting for the same rights. And so it was interesting then to talk about the role of advocacy in that space. If this is an idea that's shared across lots of different African contexts, is there something that could be done to draw in advocacy and to really help um, people who are experiencing the most severe poverty to have their rights honoured, um, particularly where race is involved.
1: Yeah, interesting. Um, I think that ties in really well to my next question, which is around you know, what the next steps are with the race, ethnicity, colour and poverty research. Um, how do you hope the evidence you've developed might lead to change within Christian Aid, more broadly outside Of the organization?
0: Our hope uh, is that this work will emphasize the importance of using different lenses to look at social dynamics, social, political, economic dynamics. And what I mean by lenses is the approach that helps you to see people who are otherwise forgotten about through our work. And so what we found when we started the research was that there's a real neglect in thinking about race ethnicity and colour when it comes to development, peace building, humanitarian work. And so we want this to contribute to the body of work that's already out there, that places an emphasis on us as actors within this changing sector to make sure that we are using these lenses in an integral way through our work. And for Christian Aid specifically, our hope is that the next step will be to create space that allows us to learn directly from people living in poverty, as well as our partners, about how this experience of the relationship between race, ethnicity, color, and poverty, I guess, shifts across those different contexts and we think it's really important to create that space because we want we are an organization that is rooted in shifting power and so we want the the framing of how we understand this to be informed by people living in poverty and our partners so that it's an it's a it's an authentic reflection of that experience and shapes our work accordingly so you've done this research
1: and you now know that the issues of, of poverty are closely rooted to issues of race and ethnicity and the way those things interrelate. Obviously, the way they interrelate is different within different historical and, and cultural contexts, but you know that those those things are all interrelating. What are the next steps? You have this evidence now around how how that works within different
2: contexts. What, what is What is next with this? Thanks, Suzanne. Um, The practical next steps is sharing the research in different ways. Um, So uh, primarily by sharing the research with different uh, country teams um, and different departments in Christian Aid, and then having um, sort of dialogues with teams and and departments to understand their feedbacks and their reactions to what was shared, um, whether it mirrors uh, what's happening in other spaces, um, what other conversations does it open up, So that's one sort of practical set uh, series that we're doing uh, as well. And the next other step uh, from a research perspective is to have a next phase of research. In our study, we spoke only to Christian Aid colleagues. So we're hoping to have a next phase of research where we're talking to the communities um, that Christian Aid works with to go through the same sort of narrative process with our partners um, and communities. And I think a third and final step is also to be looking at how we're defining poverty in Christian Aid. Christian Aid is organizations that have lots of frameworks and goalposts and so on, to look at those frameworks and see how well they are speaking to the findings or if the findings are speaking to that and thinking, how can we better expand our definitions of poverty? So those are three key steps to, to take forward. And how
1: would you say, in a nutshell, how would you say that this research has changed the way you would define poverty and to link poverty to race and to ethnicity. Emery, is there any way you could just talk through sort of those top line findings around how you feel those things need to be linked more closely in future in terms of definitions and understandings of poverty?
0: Yes, I think for me, uh, a key thing that I would highlight is, as Anne was saying, um, just at the end of that was thinking about the way in which we define and conceptualize poverty, what was really apparent in looking at these dynamics was that there is um, what we called an immaterial dimension of poverty that is experienced as a result of racial exclusion or marginalization, ethnic-based discrimination and so on. And, And this can be reflected in... Anu talked about intergenerational trauma, but also this sense of powerlessness that comes from an awareness that there is a significantly strong system that is essentially working against you. And the idea that this actually inhibits people's ability to speak up against that system, to work towards the change that challenges and disrupts that system and so for me a really important takeaway was that we need to not just be identifying the way in which material poverty is experienced. So lack of political uh, participation, limited income, uh, not being able to access education and so on, these material things that we can measure and point towards when we're talking about poverty, but to also look below the surface. And this was particularly important, I think, because it, brings us back to this idea that as humans, we are multi-dimensional beings, you know, we experience things physically, but also there's a part of us internally that um, is carrying these things that we experience. And so for me as a researcher, within all of the work that we're doing, it's about bringing that emphasis to say, how are people experiencing below what we can see, beneath what we can see? And I think when we think about race, ethnicity, color, these identity markers help us to see that in a really clear way. So that was a key takeaway for for me.
1: That's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. Um, so as my final question, how would you say that the research process that you've just been through, how has it changed you or your perspectives along the way, either personally or, or professionally? Anu? Um,
2: I think one of the ways in which it really affected me is I didn't realize how emotional I could get about a piece of research. For example, talking about, I'm, I'm a darker skinned woman in my community and then having to, to listen to some of the conversations about dark skin and women who go without food because they buy a lightness cream so that they can be more confident for a job interview um, really did affect me quite a lot. And it was really important, and as Anne-Marie said, to realize the importance of having a researcher, a research partner with whom you could share particular emotional burdens and being able to step away a, a little bit from the research, as well as sort of opening us up to the fact that I think we both thought of ourselves as being quite open and critical and analytical, so we had a sense of a sense of arrogance. But then when you have when you're listening to colleagues and they're telling you certain stories that you may not have you know thought of. For example, in IOPT, there's a very sad story about the group of Ethiopian Jews who are experiencing violence not only because they're seen as Palestinian because they have black skin. But at the same time, they're not treated well by the Palestinian community because they're from the Jewish community. so that so those are you know there's absolutely something that we didn't we weren't really prepared that we would hear, even with all of the work that we did. And so um, I think that was the thing as well to be to to a love for um, research to take you to places that you wouldn't go and t- to I started keeping a diary um, with this research to write down my reflections in the end of the day and to make sure that Anne-Marie and I were in conversation as much as possible. So that's what I learned about um, with this piece of research.
1: Oh, thank you for sharing that. Are you still keeping up the diary? Yes, I'm still keeping up the diary. Oh, good. It's always always a good thing, isn't it, really? Something I keep trying to do, trying and failing, but I will continue to try and fail. And Anne-Marie, how about you? How did you feel it 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 changed you, this process, either, either personally or, or professionally?
0: Um, I think that actually um, a really important thing and actually it straddles sort of the professional and personal lines for me was this reminder of remaining sensitive to the lived experience of people in poverty because I think that sometimes in the work that we do it's very easy to become focused on the theory and the frameworks and this kind of way of explaining things and that creates a bit of a disconnect between us and the lived experience. And so for me, it was a really good reminder that any work against poverty really primarily is about a transformation of hearts and minds, because that's what leads to this sort of collective work that we are that we are doing that then results in um, change for people living in poverty. And so for me, the way in which we change hearts and minds is by keeping our own hearts tender to those experiences so that when we hear about a story, you know, we just don't read over it like it's another, you know, item in, in the news that we really allow our hearts to connect with that and let it shape the way that we respond and, and and the level of emotion we put into response. And I think it's about reclaiming that emotion back into social sciences because, you know, for so long it's been discouraged that you have to just kind of be this blank slate but I think that when we allow ourselves to connect with those stories they not just shape our work in a really meaningful way but they change us as well as an individual and that's what I would say it allowed me to do to reconnect with that part of me that you know is is human and and finds this work meaningful and um, remains hopeful in in many ways
1: yeah, I suppose, I mean, certainly for me anyway, I'm always interested in delving into the individual, the individual stories and ev- everyone has a fascinating story, I find, if you, if we all listen hard enough. So thank you. That, that really resonates with me, certainly. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Evidence for Development podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about any of the research we've discussed, please check the episode notes for more information and links.